All right, Jesse, you know I love a historic romp. That was something else. What's the story this week? In today's episode, a post-Katrina New Orleans love story turns into a tragic cautionary tale about toxic relationships. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder. Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about tragic toxicity, troubled hearts, and of course, love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. And as always, if you enjoyed this show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app, subscribe and review to help new people discover the show. Okay, so one quick trigger warning on this episode. We know some of you guys have recently been dealing with the aftermath of Hurricane Ida. And if you are, our heart goes out to you. This story deals with Hurricane Katrina and its aftermath. So if that's something that hits a little too close to home right now, we wanted to let you know that one right up front. So hope you guys are all doing well and we're thinking of you. And this is kind of a bizarrely timed episode because of, you know, the hurricane factor, but also it takes place over the events of 9-11 as well. And we were actually recording on 9-11, the 20th anniversary. Yeah. So it's kind of, isn't that heavy? I literally like ugly cried for like 20 minutes to earlier today reading people's voicemails to their loved ones. And I'm like, why do I do this to myself? I know. I was just crying. Oh my God. So yes, I mean, also if, you know, we don't spend a lot of time on 9-11 today, but um, definitely want to send our well wishes to you too, if you were affected by the tragedy personally. Whoa. Okay. So this is a way no fun (laughs) opener. So I'm going to jump right into the story, guys. There were Bonnie and Clyde and Sid and Nancy. And then there was Zach and Addie a doomed couple whose otherworldly romance was backdropped by Hurricane Katrina, one of the worst natural disasters that the United States had ever seen. Though the couple's passions and fights would become legendary and eventually fatal, in the days following the deadly hurricane that robbed so many of their lives and loved ones, Zach and Addie were actually flourishing. Zach's military background and Addie's hard-living lifestyle lent itself well to the gritty survivalism necessary for the evacuation holdouts. Zach and Addie weathered the storm in the relatively unscathed French Quarter, where they burned mattresses and fallen branches into a bonfire, heated up canned beans on a camp stove, and drank cocktail after cocktail of pilfered booze. They cleared the streets of debris during the day and spent their nights wrapped in each other's arms in the candlelight, listening to Ray LaMontagne's album Trouble on repeat on a battery-operated boombox. Ray LaMontagne, Jesse? Ray LaMontagne. I know someone else who loves Ray LaMontagne. I really like Ray LaMontagne. Was that a heartbreak night? Yeah, that was the overalls over the boob night. Yep. Uh, that's all I think about when I hear Ray LaMontagne ever. So thank Just you. Just me in some woolen <laughs> stocking onesies crying. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Pretty much. Yes. Okay. So they were having a very different experience with Rayla Montaigne. They were falling in love, not falling out of love. 
and or having to take care of a friend that was drunkenly falling out of love very loudly. Understood. Understood. So they became mini celebrities, getting featured in the mobile register as post-apocalyptic creative do-it-yourselfers with relentlessly cheerful attitudes. They were an embodiment of the enduring hope and strength of a post-Katrina New Orleans. The New York Times even quoted the couple in an article headlined, Holdouts on Dry Ground Say, Why Leave Now? It read... In the French Quarter, Addie Hall and Zachary Bowen found an unusual way to make sure that the police officers regularly patrolled their house. Ms. Hall, 28, a bartender, flashed her breasts at the police vehicles that passed by, ensuring a regular flow of traffic. <sighs> That'll do the trick. Yeah, well. As the beautiful people of New Orleans struggled to recover, Addie and Zach hosted barbecues in their courtyard at their apartment building, providing food and booze for their friends. On one of those nights, Addie gave a toast. I wish this love for every human being on the planet. Those in attendance would later say that no two people had ever been more madly in love than Wayfish Addie, who stood barely five feet tall, and her sweet, awkward lover who topped out at six foot ten. Whoa. Yeah, he's a tall drink of water. Katrina had broken buildings. It had erased lives and dreams and families. It had revealed a broken system, but it had not broken love. It had not broken hope. And in the days as the city recovered, it seemed this young, wild, vibrant couple wasn't going to be broken either. It certainly didn't seem like within months, one person would be responsible for both their deaths in a murder-suicide so shocking it became forever part of New Orleans ghost lore. This is the tragic ballad of Zach Bowen and Addie Hall. So we're going to start off talking about Zach. Zachary Bowen was born on May 15th, 1978 to Jack and Lori Bowen, who went on to divorce when Zach was 12 and his older brother, Jed, 15. Lori moved and raised the boys in Santa Maria, California, while dad Jack stayed in Washington State. Zach was described as a shy, awkward, and goofy child who grew into a clumsy, sweet, and awkward teen. A large part of Zach's awkwardness was due to his long and lanky frame. Like I said, he was 6'10", and he had already reached that full height by the time he was in high school. He also had size 17 feet. How? I know. Apparently, he had trouble walking because of this and obviously had trouble finding shoes. He was kind of like just this like puppy. You know the puppies before they grow into their big old feet? Yep. That's what I imagine him like as a teenager. Yeah. According to his mom, Zach suffered from self-esteem issues and was frequently apologizing for any possible transgression, big, small, or imagined. He was a good kid who enjoyed heavy metal and grunge music and achieved mostly mediocre grades. After a failed attempt to be homecoming king his senior year, he felt embarrassed and ended up dropping out of high school. Huh? Was he like on the court and then didn't win or something? Yeah. So basically, um, oh, the book that I used today for the majority of the research was Shake the Devil Off by Ethan Brown, which was really a very intense read. Very, very, very intense, but very well written. And he described it as like a singular moment in Zach's life. Like apparently like you could put yourself, you could nominate yourself for homecoming court at this high school. Okay. And so he like put himself up for it. And he really, really, really wanted to win and they all had to like give speeches about why they, you know, somebody should vote for them. And he like made some joke about like if he won, he would make like naps mandatory or something. And nobody laughed. And then, of course, he he didn't end up winning. And he was also embarrassed because like 
I guess they said like where the kids were going to go to college later or what their like vocational plans were. And he just had no plans. So it was like, he just ended up feeling like a huge loser after this homecoming experience. And at first he didn't fully intend on dropping out of high school. He was going to end up going to another school. He just wanted out of this school, but he didn't end up actually going back to school after this. Hmm. Yep. So he ended up reaching out to his dad and his dad was like a lifetime service industry worker. And so he could work anywhere. He could basically get a bar job anywhere, you know? So they decided to go on a father-son road trip and they went to places like Savannah, Georgia and Fort Lauderdale, Florida, before they finished on an extended stay in New Orleans where both father and son would end up picking up bartending gigs. In the summer of 1996, Zach had grown into his height and was now a well-muscled, cute, blonde 18-year-old. The baby fat had melted off his face, leaving chiseled cheekbones and attractive dimples. As men and women alike in the French Quarter began to hit on him, Zach's confidence grew. That summer, Zach worked at various places on Bourbon Street as a go-cup boy. Basically, he would hang out a to-go window and sell beers and shots to revelers on the street. yeah. One of these steamy, hot summer nights, one of the women who heeded his siren call for alcohol was a sultry 28-year-old brunette exotic dancer named Lana Shupak. The two were immediately attracted to each other. Lana was slim, busty with a smoky voice and a great sense of humor. He was just gorgeous, Lana would reminisce later, an Adonis, she said. Lana was born in September of 1969 and adopted at birth to a nice Jewish family in Queens, New York. The first nine years of her life were fantastic, but when the family fell on hard times, they were forced to move to Houston, Texas, where her father got work as a stevedore, which is basically a dock worker. It's like somebody who like unloads ships. Lana hated the move and she began to resent her father. Apparently he was super duper strict and kind of conservative. So she rebelled as a teen, moving out of her parents' house when she was only 14. And she started dancing in strip clubs by her late teens to make ends meet. She did really, really good at this too. She said like most nights she could make up to $2,000. Whoa. That's crazy money. Also, we're talking about the 90s here. Like, I don't know if that's, I'm, it was $2,000 in the book and I did not change that for inflation. So that was a shite ton of money for a teenager to have, you know? So Lana traveled around the U.S. working the strip club circuit and she survived a brief and disastrous marriage in her mid-20s. She lived on and off in Mexico City for three years, only fleeing to move back to Texas after she was falsely implicated in a gun running case. Oh my God. I know she had had some sort of life before she met Zach, huh? Uh, Back in Dallas, she took up exotic dancing once more and she met Zach on a vacation with a coworker. 18-year-old Zach was completely knocked off his feet by womanly and confident Lana and the two spent her vacation having a steamy tryst. (laughs) When Lana went back to Dallas, Zach hounded Lana daily to move to New Orleans. He was just completely besotted with her. Of course, a like hot 28-year-old. Yeah, exotic dancer. dancer. (laughs) (laughs) I see the appeal. I certainly do. Only Only a few weeks later, she complied and the two began a hot and heavy relationship. Initially, the two were inseparable, but Lana began to distance herself from Zach when she found out he was a teenager who was a decade younger than she was. Crazy. 
so crazy. And in her defense, this guy is 6'10", works at a bar, and he got into every single bar that they went to in New Orleans. So I can see how it'd be very easy to assume he was minimum 21. So at that point, they were still kind of seeing each other, but she didn't really see him as like a forever life partner, you know? Okay. But things did change for them when Lana discovered she was pregnant in January of 1997. Yeah. Zach was understandably freaked out about becoming a teenage father, but he supported Lana's decision to have the child 100%. Oh my God. He was like more worried about like disappointing his parents. Like he wrote a letter to his mom and was like, I know that you'd probably prefer that I not have a child at 18 with an exotic dancer who's 10 years older than me. But she really wants to have this baby and I'm going to support her in it. And Lana herself was like, I know I want this child. I want to have this baby. But she didn't necessarily want Zach. And she felt like actually the responsibility of fatherhood was much too much for an 18-year-old. Yeah. Yeah. So she actually kind of pushed him away throughout her pregnancy and he wasn't even there when the baby was born. But when she took the baby home, apparently her friend was like, you have to let the father know this is not fair. And so her friend was watching the baby so that she could take a shower. And she said by the time like she called him, told him, hey, I'm home. I've had the baby. And then she went and took a shower. She's like, by the time I came out of that shower, he was there and he was holding the baby. Oh my God. That just yeah. gave me chills. Yeah, he was really, really into it. The The baby's name was Jackson. It was a boy and he was born on July 13th, 1997. So he fell completely in love with this little baby and Lana's heart softened watching this gentle giant care for their child. So she decided to give him a chance to step up. Zach began working two service industry jobs to provide for his little family and convince Lana to move in with him. In January of 1998, things were going really well for Zach until he was hanging out with a friend who was smoking a joint after work. And apparently this friend was not only just smoking a joint, he was also carrying a Coke can fashioned into a bong. And the NOPD arrested the friend and also charged Zach with possession. You've got to be kidding me. Yeah, they were like, well, if he's smoking a joint, then the bong must be yours and he was just holding it for you. And he's like, what? How does that even make sense? So the charges did get dropped because that's total bullshit. That's such bullshit. I mean, honestly, charges on marijuana in general are just Oh, absolutely ridiculous. ridiculous. Yes, I agree with you completely. But yeah, so he was still profoundly embarrassed by this. I definitely think Zach had some anxiety issues around like disappointing people because his mom talks about how he apologized constantly for things that weren't even like his fault. And even though this was total bullshit and the charges were dropped, he felt profoundly embarrassed by this. And he called his brother who had just joined the military and was like, I don't know what I'm doing in my life. I can't believe I was arrested. I'm, I'm so embarrassed. I'm, I'm sure like the whole family's embarrassed for me. And his brother was like, no, nobody's embarrassed by you. You're a kid who's figuring your life out. But if you want to get your shit together, get your GED and join the military. Okay. So Zach was like, hmm, okay, I'll consider this. I know that it would mean greater security for Lana and Jackson. And this arrest did deeply affect Zach in, in wanting so far to get his life together in a way that he'd be proud of. He seems so level-headed and like rational. 
Yes. I mean, he's doing a really good job for a young kid who became a parent at an extremely young age, you know? So he proposed to Lana and the couple was married on October 10th, 1998. I mean, he was really, really, really trying to step it up and be a good man to her. And apparently it was a really joyous occasion. His mother, Lori, and his brother, Jed, flew in from California and it was held in Jackson Park in New Orleans. The couple later said that there were more tourists than guests, but they were so happy. They didn't mind that the crowd of strangers were like taking pictures and cheering for them. It actually made it more fun. Yeah, for sure. Zach was 20 years old and Lana was just about to turn 30. And they had also just found out before the wedding that they were expecting once more. Oh my God. A little girl named Lily was born on June 12th, 1999. So Zach is only like 20, 21 with two kids and a wife already. Wow. Well, that is super heavy for a young guy. I mean, for any young person. So he decided to better his life by getting his GED and enlisting in the U.S. Army. Lana later said he wanted to make a better life for the kids. He wanted to make a better life for us. He did all this so that I wouldn't have to strip and he wouldn't have to bartend. Besides, she added, at the time, there was no war. After basic training in June of 2000, Zach was sent to a military base in Gießen, Germany, and joined the 527th MP Company, part of the 709th Military Police Battalion. Zach initially loved the army. He was bright, funny, and popular, and a hit with all of his fellow soldiers. Zach could play the guitar, so he would host jams with the other musically inclined soldiers, and also jumped behind the local college bars to whip up some New Orleans-style cocktails while out. Oh my God, so fun. Yeah, he was apparently super fun and popular. When his geese and friends were sick, he'd bring them soup and tea. He talked lovingly of his wife and his undying affection for his adopted hometown of New Orleans. A local friend named Katarina said that Zach was unbelievably considerate, almost to a fault, she said. During leave, he got a chance to travel to other European destinations. It was a dream assignment for Zach. But the easy street came to an end in January of 2001 when Zach was deployed to Kosovo. The 527th objectives in Kosovo was to deter hostility between military forces from the Federal Republic of Yugoslavia and the Kosovo Liberation Army, maintain a secure environment, and confront the humanitarian crisis there. The bodies of thousands of ethnic Albanians had been found in mass graves across Kosovo, and hundreds of thousands of refugees had fled the city. Oh, no. Yeah. At first, the 527th were tasked with patrolling the streets. Zach was a gunner who would sit up at the top of the Humvee and drum and sing to keep the company upbeat and awake. His fellow soldiers particularly recalled his rousing version of Tainted Love by Soft Cell. (laughs) Such a good song. However, the company was soon tasked with much grimmer objectives, uncovering and bagging mass graves and confronting violent Serbs. As you can imagine, moving and bagging the dead was an absolutely awful experience. Even worse, on a spring day in 2001, Zach gave a few pieces of candy to a young Albanian girl. The next day, Zach was told that she had been killed simply for interacting with an American soldier. Oh my God. That is so scarring. Whoa. Zach was devastated. Zach was also getting upset because Lana wasn't faring very well, raising two extremely small children by herself and managing a long-distance relationship and full-time jobs, you know? Yeah. Zach was getting frustrated because due to her depression and general just 
exhaustion and fatigue, you know, from being essentially a single mother. She hadn't done the paperwork necessary to have the family join him back in the military base in Germany. Okay. So Zach was relieved when it was announced that his platoon would be going back to Gießen, but all that awaited him there was not his family like he had hoped, but a painful foot surgery. What? Zach's size 17 feet hadn't fit into traditional, like, government-issued military boots. So he had been wearing boots that were too small for him, and he had developed a condition called hammer toe on both feet. I don't know if I want to know what that is. It's basically, if you guys Google it, it's real gnarly looking. It's from wearing shoes that are, like, too small for you. I had a coworker who wore a lot of um, like pointy high heels while being on her feet all the time because she was in sales and she had to have this surgery. But I imagine it was much worse for Zach here. Whoa. It's like basically like your your toes being smooshed into this position for a while, like end up like bent and gnarled and it's extremely painful. So he had to have surgery on both feet. And one silver lining of this was that he did receive medical leave to go home And he got to see Lana and the kids. Well, in New Orleans, Zach finished the paperwork himself and was able to return (laughs) with his family when he went back to Giessen. Okay, good. Making the transition from civilian life to military life was difficult for Lana, who didn't quite fit in with the other army wives. It probably hadn't helped that Zach had bragged to everyone that his wife was an exotic dancer no. and had even... No. No. Zach. Zach, baby. Come on. Yeah, and, and she had sent him photos of like her and her like coworkers, like topless and like working at the club. And she was like, every time like we were partying, we'd be like, let's take a topless photo for Zach, you know, which is like super cute. Yeah. But he showed these topless photos to the other soldiers as well. Yeah, that's where his age shows. <laughs> Def, that is a teenage <laughs> boy, early 20s move right yeah. there. Yeah. Yeah. So it was like a little awkward and she like knew he had done this. But Zach was so popular that eventually Lana's profession was forgotten and the two became friendly with many of the other military families. Though Lana at first had a hard time because she was so used to being independent, making her own money. She didn't have a job on base, you know? Okay. And she didn't really know anyone at first. And Zach was working so many crazy hours. So at first it was a little difficult for her, but she was very adventurous and she loved to like pile the kids in the car and just take them on road trips all over Europe. Okay. And so it ended up being a very positive experience around this time for their family. I mean, I was going to say she could dance in Germany. Probably, but I think that she was also trying to get out of that lifestyle, even if she was like, oh, it's weird. I don't have my own money, my own job, and I have all this time. I think in general, the whole point of the army was to like get out of having to dance, you know? But the familial happiness did not last long, however. When the terror attacks occurred on September 11th, both Lana and Zach were aware that his next deployment would be somewhere far scarier with much more on the line. Oh, no. It didn't happen right away, but in January of 2003, the 527th deployed to Kuwait and then Iraq. The goal for the company in Iraq was to set up police stations and train the Iraqi police force in Baghdad. This was obviously much easier said than done because there were insurgents everywhere trying to kill the American soldiers. So they were just constantly ending up in dangerous firefights or the target of small bombs. Yep. One soldier deployed with Zach, who he got extremely close to, was a young 19-year-old woman named Rachel Bosveld, nicknamed Boz. So she was like this really 
amazing, brave, bright, creative girl who after September 11th enlisted because she wanted to do something great for our country. But she was tiny. She was like barely five foot. And, and, but she was just like, you know, she'd be, but tiny, but is fierce or something, you know, that old saying. Yep. She was just had this huge personality. And I guess like everybody in the platoon absolutely adored her and they felt protective over her because she was so little, you know? So in the book, Shake the Devil Off, Ethan Brown has like all these crazy stories of what happened to this company in the Iraq war. And I could not list everything that he talked about. So if you guys are interested in that, definitely check out the book. But like there's crazy stuff that he was talking about. Like a big part of their job too was like trying to find and rid terrorists of weapons. Okay. And the situations that they found themselves in on the way from Kuwait to Iraq was like coming up next to a dump truck that was piled high with dead goat bodies. Uh, and when they went through it, they literally had to remove all of the dead goat bodies and they found all of these RPG launchers, which are rocket propelled grenade launchers. Another time they found like a farmer and they noticed that it was weird because the farmer was wearing sandals, but his like feet were really well pedicured and his like he had no dirt underneath his fingernails. And so they're like, okay, I don't think this is a real farmer. And they went through his like tomato truck and there was a ton of weapons in it. So it was like danger was absolutely everywhere. And sometimes while they were traveling, all of a sudden they would just be like fired on for a half hour. Like they'd just be traveling and hearing ping, 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 ping of bullets hitting their armored cars. You can imagine how stressful this is. Also, they're in the desert and they're wearing all of this gear. And apparently they didn't have enough water. They said that at one point, each soldier got one small bottle of water per day. What? Yeah, it was a terrible situation. Rachel almost died when a grenade hit the Humvee she was traveling in and it immediately caught on fire. So the driver was injured with shrapnel but managed to get out and she was in the passenger side and the explosion had like jarred her door. So she was like kicking it and punching it and putting her whole weight on it. But the the, the Humvee is on fire and she's still inside of it. She finally pushed the door open and she got out but it was a terrifying experience. She survived though. She survived, yes. Zach was fortunate enough to not get injured while in Iraq, but at home in Germany, Lana became seriously ill. Ethan Brown wrote, Lana was sick and had been diagnosed with a severe case of hepatitis C, a bloodborne infectious disease affecting the liver that would soon need to be treated with interferon therapy which involves injecting the patient with interferon, a protein naturally made by the body to fight off a virus like the flu. The extra interferon, while highly effective in treating hepatitis C, also causes fever, chills, joint aches, hair loss, and a low white blood cell count. Oh my God. Yeah, it's some like dangerous stuff. It's kind of like how chemo is so bad for you, but it, it it's necessary. This is like that version of, of hepatitis C. It also included the possibility of seizures or acute heart or kidney failure. The therapy would make Lana's task of caring for Jackson and Lily on her own difficult, if not impossible. I looked like I was dying, Lana remembers, and everyone on the base thought I was dying. I was already so sick that I couldn't take care of myself or the kids. Yeah. That summer, Zach was allowed to fly back to Giessen to visit Lana, but only for a few days. He held me while I shook and was delirious with a fever of 105, Lana explained. 
When Zach arrived in Baghdad, Lana hoped that he would be able to return to Giessen at the time when she would likely be at her sickest from the interferon therapy. But just as Zach settled back at the palace outside of Baghdad, the symptoms of Lana's hepatitis C worsened much more quickly than her doctor had anticipated. Her doctor informed her that it would be dangerous to delay the interferon therapy any longer. And because he had just returned from leave, Zach was not permitted by his superiors to go back to Giessen. Oof. The constant attacks and the prospect of not being with his wife as she was potentially dying began to sour Zach on the military. Yeah. It would do the mm. same to me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. His belief in the war with Iraq was shaken as well. Zach only became more despondent when Rachel, Boz, was killed in a car bombing that also took the legs of two other fellow soldiers. Yeah, no. I'd be out. Ugh. I'd be out. And like the one water bottle a day situation. Yeah. Like, come on, guys. Later that summer, Zach mourned another loss. He had befriended an Iraqi boy whose parents owned a small uh, shop mm -hmm, across from a police station that Zach worked at. The little boy would visit with Zach and bring him Cokes and gum. Zach, in turn, taught him how to speak English, and the two formed a beautiful bond. Zach, missing his own children back in Germany, thought of the boy as a surrogate child. When the boy's family's shop was bombed by insurgents in payback for collaborating with Americans and killing the entire family, Zach grew deeply depressed. Yeah. In November of 2003, his company was sent back to Giessen, but Zach was no longer the happy-go-lucky soldier who sang Tainted Love. Lana had survived her illness and was so excited to have Zach back in Germany, but she immediately noticed a huge difference in her husband. Zach was quiet, withdrawn, and brooding. He was angry at the military for not letting him be with his wife as she almost died, and he was just angry in general. Zach had massive amounts of survivor's guilt about his friends who had passed away or been grievously injured. And he was also experiencing early indicators of the onset of PTSD, like frequent and severe headaches and an inability to sleep. Yep. You know what we do in America for people with PTSD? Nothing. Literally nothing. It's absolutely insane considering how much money we pay in taxes for the military. And they can't put some of that money towards mental care for veterans and soldiers. It's really, really, really sad. I mean, that's the best way we could be supporting our troops, you yeah. know? Like, yeah, no veteran that especially has been to combat should have to come back and face homelessness or, you know, no mental health support. Yeah. It's devastating. And, and you're going to get really frustrated because Zach's situation gets really bad. You know, his body was like almost physically rejecting the army. He began to suffer from shortness of breath painful and itchy rashes. He had constant shoulder and back aches. And he basically just lost the will to perform or do anything for the military at this point. And he began purposely tanking his army physical fitness tests. And that resulted in disciplinary action. After months of failed tests, trainings, and warnings, when Zach could still not or would not perform, he was instructed to be separated from the military under Chapter 13 AR 635-200, Unsatisfactory Performance. And even though a superior noted in his file that given Zach's track record, he should be awarded an honorable discharge, he was instead given a general discharge in parentheses under honorable conditions, which to lay people like you and I sounds 
pretty similar, but it is actually wildly different when it comes to military benefits. Author Ethan Brown broke it down very well in his book. He said, under a general discharge, soldiers may lose benefits such as a home loan guarantee, life insurance, or disability and education benefits, which are evaluated on a case-by-case basis for those who receive this type of discharge. A general discharge, even under honorable conditions, can further create serious obstacles for veterans in finding a civilian job as it indicates that the vet had problems in the military. Indeed, when Zach signed his notification of separation under AR 635-200, Chapter 13, Unsatisfactory Performance, late that fall, he agreed to the following condition. I may be ineligible for many or all benefits as a veteran under both federal and state laws, and I may expect to encounter substantial prejudice in civilian life. Ugh. So Zach was not honest with Lana or any of his family members about the type of discharge he had received. Even worse, Zach hadn't told Lana anything about tanking his fitness exams. So she was completely blindsided when she found out that he was discharged. One afternoon during the late fall of 2004, after arriving home at the barracks in Giessen, Zach announced to Lana, we're out of the military. When Lana pressed him for details about the discharge, Zach refused to provide them, sparking a huge fight. I was livid, Lana remembered. We had started a life in the military so that Zach wouldn't have to bartend and I wouldn't have to strip. I told Zach, we're done. Lana was so furious that she left Zach right then and there and flew back to New Orleans to start planning a new life as a single mother. Whoa, with the two kids. Well, so the kids were in school and and she said that they were taken care of on base. So she actually like left them and went ahead and she told Zach to bring the kids when he came back. Like they have childcare there? I guess so. She said how she explained it in the book was that they were in a good Department of Defense school. Okay. And that she didn't want to take them out while they were almost yeah. done with the school year. Yeah. I think there was some childcare situation and she trusted Zach insofar as that he would, you know, be able to take care of their children. And I guess he had to finish up, you know, whatever his duties were before he left anyway. So he had lost everything and he was too depressed and tired to even fight for the correct discharge so he could claim the benefits that he was entitled to. Military attorneys who later looked over Zach's situation were shocked he did not receive an honorable discharge. Other than the failed fitness exams, Zach had never, ever caused a disciplinary problem. And in four years, he had served honorably in two war zones, received numerous medals, badges, and commendations. He also had quickly risen from a private to a sergeant. The tragic result of the mismanagement of Zach's transition from combat soldier to civilian was that he was left out in the cold. A soldier who had documented post-deployment mental health issues and his family stripped of benefits or any assistance by the government that he had risked his life for. Uh, Doesn't it make you sick to your stomach? Yes. By the time Zach returned to New Orleans with the kids, he had to face some more bad news. Lana was already dating somebody new. Despite this, she was willing to live in the same house as her soon-to-be ex-husband as he got on his feet. She didn't want to be with him any longer, but she did want Zach to find his way, and she wanted the best situation for the kids. It was a tricky situation, though, for the first few months because Zach still at that time pined for Lana and hoped to win her back. That, however, did change when Zach got a job bartending at a French Quarter dive bar called Hogs in the spring of 2005. Zach was given the graveyard shift from 2 a.m. to 10 a.m., which was actually pretty lucrative in New Orleans. All of the dancers and servers and bartenders would make their way over to Hogs after their shifts were over, and you know those people are the best tippers. Yep. 
<laughs> I'm pretty sure that like match Capitol Grill, Sansi, Dylan's in Boston. We just like traded tips to each other constantly. Totally, totally. <laughs> so even though Zach had originally joined the army to get out of the service industry, he found that he really enjoyed being behind the stick once more. He especially liked one coworker who replaced him on the day shift. Hogs is where Zach met Addie, and a passionate, tumultuous love affair was born. Adrian Addie Hall was a diminutive lith blonde who, at 28, moonlit as a bartender while she pursued her passions for sewing, dancing, and poetry on the side. She was raised in Durham, North Carolina by a Vietnam vet father and a stay-at-home mother. Addie was creative and passionate, but not academically inclined. So she dropped out of high school and traveled the country, basically hitching and couch surfing for a couple years until she returned to Durham to teach salsa and ballroom dancing lessons. Oh, my God. Yeah, that sounds fun, huh? A friend of Addie's from Durham described her as a young woman who was vulnerable yet strong, kind, but could be scarily aggressive the next moment. Addie told this friend, a woman named Catherine, that she had been raped as a teen, the traumatic event spurring her decision to drop out of school and run away from home. Catherine described her as a Robin Hood type. Addie would collect money and food for the homeless and was also an excellent poet. Unfortunately, Catherine lost touch with Addie in 2002 when Addie became restless and moved to New Orleans. In New Orleans, Addie lived with a series of platonic male friends who both loved and loathed her. She could be smart and fun and generous, but when she drank too much, she turned viciously cruel. A coworker at a restaurant she worked at called Mona Lisa and a former roommate named Rob described her to author Ethan Brown as follows. Rob understood Addie's personality from the get-go. He loved that she could be nurturing. She'd make oatmeal breakfast for him at Mona Lisa, yet also bold and confrontational with friends, coworkers, and customers alike. She would deliver food to people and then cuss them out, Rob told me. She'd say, I risked my life to come down here for a dollar tip. She had no problem giving people the finger or starting fights. That's why I liked her. I guess I'm kind of like that a little bit too. <laughs> so yeah, so she was like really sweet and tough as nails, but also a little scary. In 2004, Addie befriended a New Zealand native who had landed in New Orleans in his teens named Capriccio. The two began to date, but Addie's dark moods and troubling past got in the way of the two sharing a deeper romance. Capriccio said that Addie had been horrifically sexually abused as a child, even landing her in the hospital with a terrible UTI before she even turned 13. Oh my God. She had gone on to date emotionally and physically abusive men who injured both her soul and her body. Capriccio wondered if she was even able to see men as anything but abusive predators, as that is what they had always been to her. The romantic and sexual nature of their relationship petered out, but the love and friendship stayed. Addie considered Capriccio part of her tribe, something that was important to her as she didn't seem to have much contact with her biological family. Okay. When Addie met sweet, awkward, goofy Zachary Bowen, she wasn't immediately charmed by him like her coworkers and the bar patrons were. But Zach was immediately smitten with her. He eventually won her over by buying her Jägermeister shots and hanging out all day at her bar until the manager shooed him away. Oof. <laughs> Jaeger, baby. God, I haven't had a shot of Jaeger since I was like 24. I, yeah, I mean, same, I think. But I mean, is Jaeger that different from Fernet? No. I feel like we drank Fernet all the time and they're very like kind of a similar pattern. Yeah, they are. They're both licorice-y. Yeah. 
Zach had always worshipped the bohemian, bon vivant style of the French Quarter that Addie seemed to embody. She was young, beautiful, broken, artistic, creative, and wild. And though, like I said, they made kind of a physically funny pair because she was barely five feet tall and she was real tiny and he was like this huge hulking 6'10 guy, they did have incredible chemistry. By August of 2005, the two lovebirds were officially a couple and some light had come in to banish the darkness in both of their lives. Well, this is unfortunately the part of the story where something happens to the happy couple. And in this tragic case, it was Hurricane Katrina. Katrina was a devastating Category 5 hurricane that caused over 1,800 deaths and $125 billion in damage, essentially decimating New Orleans. It was a monumental failure of engineering and the U.S. government's response that caused massive flooding and so many New Orleans residents lost their homes, loved ones, or lives. Ugh. On Saturday, August 27th, Katrina was a Category 3 hurricane and about to sweep in. Storm models showed that New Orleans was due to take a direct hit. That night at 5 p.m., the mayor urged the citizens to leave the city. The following morning, when Katrina was upgraded to Category 4 and then 5, the mayor then ordered a mandatory evacuation. So Lana called Zach and she begged him to come be with the family while this is going on. Their initial plan was to hunker down in her West Bank apartment. I think ultimately they ended up going to a shelter. But Zach refused, saying that he refused to leave Addie's side. And at that point, Lana begged him. She was like, I don't care. Bring your girlfriend. That's cool. I just want to know that you guys are safe. I want to know that like my kid's father is going to be okay. And like our kids need their dad. This is a huge crisis, you know? But Zach wouldn't budge. So he didn't end up spending Hurricane Katrina with his children. Zach and Addie raided hogs and they stocked up on booze, beer, and ice. They decided to weather the storm in Addie's French Quarter apartment, refusing to evacuate. The reason why Katrina was so deadly was because of the levee breaks that caused massive floods, which led to the exorbitant loss of life and destruction. Raymond Seed, a professor of civil engineering at Berkeley, called the levee failures one of the two most costly failures of engineered systems in history, rivaled only by Chernobyl. Woof. But the French Quarter was built on higher ground, so those New Orleanians suffered bad but survivable damage. Addie and Zach were without power, of course, but they were also without jobs or responsibilities. So they would set out a wooden table in the street and serve canned goods to fellow survivors and evacuee holdouts. They drank and they drank. They made love. They made bonfires in the street. Well, Katrina was absolutely devastating to just about anybody else who had to live through it, and especially those who tragically didn't. For Zach and Addie, it was different. Ethan Brown wrote, the immediate aftermath of the levee breaks, mass power outages, eerily abandoned streets, and a silence that descended over the entire city even during the daytime hours had a cleansing effect on Zach and Addie. The disaster seemed to have washed away their past, his tour in Iraq, her sexual abuse, and created a world of their own in which they could fall in love. On the rare occasions when Zach and Addie left the perimeter of the Governor Nichols apartment, they biked down the French Quarter streets holding hands as they pedaled. During this time, they helped clean up the streets, they bonded with their fellow holdouts, and became somewhat famous after doing interviews with the Mobile Register and the New York Times. 
In the midst of all this death and destruction, Zach and Addie were thriving romantically. It was not, however, all a walk in the park. One day when Addie went to accumulate supplies at a local market, which was a euphemism for looting, she was attacked in the pitch dark store by a man who attempted to rape her. Oh my God. She managed to fight the man off and get back to Zach, who had been waiting outside, but she was badly shaken. This is traumatic for absolutely anyone, but as a sexual abuse survivor, it was even more so. Yeah. I was going to say that definitely triggered something. Mm-hmm. Furthermore, when the National Guard troops entered the city, Zach's PTSD was badly triggered. As people began to return to the city, Zach and Addie grew frustrated. A good friend of theirs named Jack Jones said, they hated it when people started coming back. They hated everybody from the Katrina sightseers to people who hadn't survived the hurricane and were making their way back home. Jack sensed that behind Zach and Addie's expressed resentment of the evacuees lay a fear that their return symbolized a change to what passed for ordinary in New Orleans. They liked the lifestyle we had during the hurricane, Jack explained. They liked camping out. They liked not having to work. They liked not having the responsibility of paying bills. They didn't like the change back to normalcy. I mean, I feel that I definitely miss COVID traffic or lack thereof. (laughs) I miss the excuse of never having to go to anything ever. Yeah. So. Yeah. I feel them. But Mm -hmm. you can't like be resentful about it. You can like miss it without being angry. Yeah, and you can't be resentful at people who evacuated following the mayor's the mandatory order. You know, it's not like they're somehow less New Orleanian than you because they, you know, did the the wise and protective thing. You know, no, but they're both struggling with PTSD and mental health issues. Yeah, exactly. Though they attempted to stay in the love bubble by hosting the courtyard barbecues I mentioned in the beginning and leaning in towards one another by late October, real life had beckoned. And real life included Zach's not-yet-divorced wife and his two children. Lana was beyond angry that Zach had prioritized partying with his girlfriend rather than evacuating with his family and ensuring his children's safety. Yeah. I would have been irate, girl. Lana and the kids had spent a few terrifying nights in a shelter before evacuating to Sugarland, Texas, where Lana worked as a waitress at Applebee's to support the kids. In the two months since Katrina hit, Zach had neither financially supported the children nor checked in with his family at all. Initially, Lana even believed that Zach had died as he wasn't returning any of her texts or voicemails. Oh my goodness. So when Lana got back to the city, she went to Addie's apartment to confront Zach, but he wasn't there. And Lana said in the book that she was carrying a baseball bat. She was so angry. She was like full on lemonade, gonna make a scene over here. Yeah. So he wasn't there. So she was like rapping on the door and she's like, you come out here and you talk to me about your children. And it freaked Addie out because she was home. Okay. And Addie didn't answer the door. So eventually, Zach and Lana did finally meet up in a restaurant to talk about their situation, and they both were just unbelievably pissed with one another. Lana, for very, very good reason. Yeah. And Zach was mad at her for what he perceived as her threatening his girlfriend. Oh, my goodness. I know. Zach, you are not winning this one. No. So basically, they fought like a ton about this, and... 
they finally came to an agreement that if he paid child support, she would let him have the kids like every other weekend. Okay. Initially, Addie seemed enthusiastic to become a stepmother, but after only the first visit, she completely lost interest in the children. And every time he they visited after that, she would instead go out on long bar crawls, get wasted, come home drunk after they were already asleep and just basically have nothing to do with them. That's a bummer. It's a super bummer. And within only a few of those visits, Addie began demanding that Zach actually take his kids to a hotel when it was his weekend. Is it not his apartment? It's technically she's on the lease. Okay. He moved into her place. But that's so shitty. If you have a partner that has children, they are a package. They come together. You cannot pick the man and not the children, you know? No. That's like super fucked up. Yeah. So as you can see, real life was beginning to intrude on the couple's honeymoon period here. In early 2006, Addie got a job bartending at a jazz club called The Spotted Cat, and Zach started delivering groceries for a well-known market named Matassas in the Lower French Quarter, where he worked with Capriccio. So the audiobook pronounced it Capriccio, but it is written more like Capriccio, so I'm not really sure which it is, and I'll probably use them interchangeably. It was also funny because the audiobook, clearly uh, the narrator had said Giesen wrong when he recorded it because every time it was, it was a patch. <laughs> so it was like, and then they went back to the base at Giesen. And like, it was the same way of saying Giesen every time. <gasps> oh my uh-huh. God. Hilarious. Yeah. Dude, pronunciations are hard and people will ride your ass in reviews if you don't say things right. Yeah. Oof. Yeah. So guys, we're doing the best we can out here. I'm, I hope I'm pronouncing everything correctly for you. <laughs> So Zachary gained a lot of confidence with his new job and absolutely loved zipping around the neighborhood on his delivery bike. Lana said because of that job, everybody knew Zach. He thought he was the king of Bourbon Street, the king of the French Quarter. By early spring, the toxicity of the relationship between Zach and Addie was starting to become apparent. The couple would go out on all night drinking and drugging binges and then fight like crazy. Sometimes the fight turned physical. More than once, they both emerged from a blackout covered in bruises inflicted by the other and no memory of the physical fight. Uh Uh-oh. Yeah. The relationship became so untenable that Zach actually left Addie and his beloved New Orleans to move to Washington State. But he was miserable without his city and his girl and flew back after only a few weeks. It turns out, like, Capriccio actually sent him plane ticket money because they were both so miserable without each other. Oh, my God. Returning to Addie did nothing to repair their relationship. The same old fights over jealousy and disrespect and Zach's kids came up over and over again, fueled by drugs and alcohol. The relationship was so poisonous by this time that most of their friends tried to intervene. Capriccio did his best to counsel both Zach and Addie to take some time apart, and occasionally they would take his advice. Addie would kick Zach out, and then Zach would move in with a bartender military veteran friend who also dabbled in some drug sales, named Squirrel for a little while. Squirrel. His name was Squirrel. Was that a nickname? No, it was a given name. Of course, Andrea was a nickname. (laughs) This man's parents did not name him Squirrel. I don't know if it was like Squirrel, short for Squirrelman. No, no, it wasn't. (laughs) Okay, that makes more sense than his given name being Squirrel. Oh, you crack me up. Some people's names are Bear. (laughs) <laughs> That's a little different than how 
squirrel because a bear is like big and like I don't know maybe he's small and likes nuts <laughs> well I think that was part of it. I don't think he was a super big guy <laughs> okay case in point so squirrel was like his best friend and whenever they fought he would literally like load up his bike with all of his possessions move into squirrel's place I'm going to squirrels <laughs> yes <laughs> Oh, God, this is like, guys, this is a very serious topic, but it's really hard when one of the people in it is named Squirrel. Squirrel. Come on. It makes it very difficult. Um, That threw what? Threw me for a loop right there. Yeah. Apparently, they were so back and forth about this relationship that Zach's coworkers started calling his delivery bike his moving truck because he was constantly bringing his all of his belongings back and forth. That's hilarious. Unfortunately, their fights became so loud and scary that the neighbors began calling the cops on them. And one night while getting kicked out of the apartment by Addie, Zach was arrested for having a small baggie of pot on him. Oh, no. Yeah, so Addie bailed him out, but it was clear that the relationship was having terrible consequences for both members of the couple. I mean, this was a poisonous relationship. Yeah. Stuck in a loveless and abusive relationship and that goes for both of them you know like I'm sure Addie dealt her damage but she's also five foot he's a six foot ten military veteran you know like he can't be putting his hands on her no Zach began to seek out comfort elsewhere so he had started partying at a gay leather bar called the Phoenix and he liked the attention that the men there paid him eventually he befriended a local real estate agent and began to date him in the summer of 2006 no way Yeah, plot twist, huh? Plot twist. Though he tried to keep the relationship on the DL, the French Quarter social scene was small, and eventually Addie found out about her on-and-off boyfriend's new boyfriend. Needless to say, she handled it extremely poorly. From Shake the Devil Off. I don't know why I thought you were going to say extremely well. That would have been nice, huh? Yeah. Honestly, everybody in the story would have had a much better life if he had just stayed dating the real estate agent. Furious at Zach's infidelity, Addie began to taunt Zach with her anti-gay epithets. One afternoon early that fall, Addie rode her bike by Matassa's and shouted at Zach in front of his friends, it would be nice to have sex with a straight man one of these days. On another occasion, this one's really bad, Addie stole Zach's cell phone, called all the women in his phone book, and told them that he had AIDS. Oh my God, that is not okay. That is so far from okay. She then deleted all of the phone numbers from the SIM card on his cell phone. Wow, could you imagine being one of the girls receiving that call? It's just, it's homophobic, it's hateful, it's mean. It's anxiety-inducing. Anxiety-inducing and cruel. It's just... It's just a it's a befuddling thing to do to somebody that you are saying you love. Well, yeah, and like do they even count as like what do you say that that her boy you said her They were like her on boy? and off again, you yeah, know? But like like it, it's like you don't own someone. You don't never own anyone in a relationship, but like it's not like you even get a right to be, you know, territorial when you're on and off again. No, absolutely not. And she was kicking him out of the apartment, so it's like he was like assumed they were over, you know? Yeah, no. Nah. She was in a bad way financially and I think mentally at this time. I think she was still holding her job at the Spotted Cat, but the constant drinking and drug use was obviously affecting her wallet, you know? 
After a disagreement with her landlord, she was also facing eviction. So Zach had around this time gotten a second job bartending at Bufa's. So he was actually doing fairly well financially at this point. And Addie convinced him to move in with her and foot the bill for their first, last, and deposit. Zach decided to commit to Addie for good and attempt a fresh start in a new home. So he broke up with the guy he was kind of seeing and really decided like maybe the problems were the old apartment and if they had like a little bit more space and a renewal that they could go back to the way they used to be, you know? In October of 2006, Zach and Addie moved into a second floor apartment at 826 North Rampart Street, which is, it sounds like very New Orleans because the first floor housed the cultural center of priestess Miriam Chimani's voodoo spiritual temple. Wow. That sounds really fun and very New Orleans, huh? Yes, yes. However, within two days, the landlord, Leo Watermeyer, found Addie at his doorstep demanding he drop a six-month lease in her name only. So apparently when the apartment became available, like literally there was like just a sign out front and they just like went to it, the guy, and they were like, hey, can we get the apartment? And he was like, if you can pay first, last, and deposit right now, it's yours. And he didn't even get a lease. So Addie showed up and was like, I want an official lease with just my name on it. Okay. And he was like, okay, sure, whatever. And so he actually just like took out a legal pad and like wrote like six months rent in her name and they both signed it. Okay. And he said that apparently Addie had gone home and tried to kick Zach out at that point, holding the lease. And so Zach called Leo like five minutes after this and he was like, did you just like create a lease for her? with just her name on it. And Leah was like, yeah, but I mean, I assumed that you guys were staying together. It's just like, she is officially on the lease. And he's like, dude, she's trying to throw me out. So Leah was like, well, hold on, hold on. I'll come over there. And so Leah went over to the apartment. And when he got there, they were like completely screaming at each other. And Addie starts yelling, he cheated on me with a man. He's no good. I am kicking him out. I'm going to be a really good tenant. Don't you worry. And at that point, Leah was like, this is a mess. I'm just a landlord. This is for you guys to work out. Like, I don't care who stays as long as you pay rent, but like, I'm not getting involved in your personal situation. You know? Yeah, no, no. Yeah. So eventually Addie let Zach into the apartment and the couple continued to fight into the night. Over the next couple weeks, Addie wasn't seen at all, though Zach continued to go to work for a little while and was seen out partying several times late into the evening. When asked about Addie, Zach claimed that she had ripped him off and left town. So uh, some of her friends were like, okay, that kind of sounds like Addie. Like she's kind of like rash. I can see that she would maybe just take off. But other of her friends were like, that's really weird. I know she's having money problems. So why would she like leave when she needs to stay and make some money before she could potentially travel, you know? Yeah, no, that doesn't make sense. A week after Addie and Zach's fight, Zach stopped going to work. He began partying like crazy, spending money on cocaine and alcohol, hitting the strip clubs up until the wee hours of the morning. Yikes. So his friends were beginning to worry about him. This was very bizarre behavior. And they, at this point, chalked it up to Addie leaving him as that he was having this like meltdown. Crisis, yeah. And there was this definite new dark edge to their previously fun-loving pal. Like, even when he was, like, out partying, he was, like, it was, there was something wrong, you know? Yep. 
Unfortunately, they had just no idea the terrible secret that Zach was keeping. On Tuesday, October 17th, around 4 p.m., Zach took a small baggie of Coke from his friend Squirrel. He, I guess he was like trying to get Squirrel to come out and party with him. And Squirrel was like, no, I'm, I'm sleeping a bender off. But he took his Coke. And then he headed over to the Omni Royal Hotel on St. Louis Street. He took the elevator up to the rooftop bar and proceeded to rack up a bar tab, taking shot after shot of Jameson and smoking cigarettes. A popular Latin dance band singer named Freddie was performing at the rooftop bar that day and noticed Zach drinking, smoking, and pacing. Freddie recalled that though Zach was dressed very simply, just in jeans and boots, he looked elegant, quote, like a rock star. Around 8-ish that evening, the band began to pack up and the bartender approached Freddie pissed. Zach had skipped out on his sizable bar tab. Oh, no. So Freddie told him, he was like, okay, I I remember that guy. Why don't I go and see if he's like in any of the bars nearby? So I'm going to take the elevator down, go out into the front quarter, and I'm going to go look for him, you know? Okay. Unfortunately for the bartender, and unbeknownst to Freddie, just before 8.30 p.m., Zach had downed the last of his drink and slowly walked up to the roof's edging. A security tape captured Zach pacing back and forth, and then at 8.30 sharp, he leapt off the building. Oh, my God. Zach landed five stories down on the roof of the Omni's parking garage and was killed instantly. Only five stories? So they say five stories in the book, and he did such great research that I'm inclined to believe him, but there was like a medium post that said it was seven stories. Okay. So yeah, so somewhere between five and seven. Yeah. Within moments, a horrified hotel guest called the front desk and then the hotel manager called 911. So the police arrive on the scene and the death, while unfortunate and extremely sad, was clearly a straightforward suicide. I mean, the hotel security footage saw that Zach actually jumped over the edge. There was nobody there to push him or anything. However, when an investigator from the coroner's office rifled through Zach's pockets, they found a Ziploc bag that contained his military dog tags, house key, and a note that chilled the officers to the core and made them realize that the situation at hand was far from straightforward. The note read, This is not accidental. I had to take my own life to pay for the one that I took. If you send a patrol to 826 North Rampart, you will find the dismembered corpse of my girlfriend, Addie, in the oven, on the stove, and in the fridge. Jessica. Along with a full documentation on the both of us and a full signed confession from myself. The keys in my right front pocket are for the gates. Call Leah Watermeyer to let you in. Zach Bowen. Nothing about his family or wife. No, but there's there's something else in the apartment. So the police first went to Leo's apartment at 812 North Rampart and like thought for some reason that she was going to be there. There must have just been some confusion when they looked up his address, you know, because yeah, I mean, also, this is extremely overwhelming. Yes, exactly. So he's like, they come in and they're like, we need to search your house for a corpse. And he's like, uh, there's no corpse at my house. Oh, my God. Could you imagine? Yeah, he's like, feel free to come in and search whatever you want, but there's no dead bodies here. And then when they realized that he was the landlord, they were like, oh, okay. And and they said that Zach Bowen had left them this note. And he's like, oh, yeah, okay, I'll take you over there. I know exactly who they are. And so it was like a block away from his own apartment. And so he walked them over. And he said that he did not go up. He's like, uh, they kind of had told him a little bit about the situation. He's like, I don't want to see any of that. 
So when the NOPD walked into the small apartment, the temperature was freezing cold. They described it like being in a meat locker. Zach had set the AC on full blast to offset the decomposition of Addie's body. Ugh. Beer cans stuffed with cigarette butts littered the floor and spray-painted messages were scrawled across the apartment's walls that read, please call my wife, I'm a total failure, I love her. Above the bed, it said, please help me stop the pain. And lastly, look in the oven. Above the stove was a spray-painted silver arrow pointing down. On the range's front burner, in a deep cooking pot, was Addie's head. Oh my God. I can't. A large pot on the back burner contained her hands and feet. In the oven, Addie's small legs were charred black from being cooked in a tinfoil turkey pan. What? Why? So the feeling that I got was that he was trying to dispose of the remains by dismembering her and then like cooking them down apparently. And then at some point he was like, I'm not going to get rid of this or I'm not going to get away with this. And he just decided to kill himself instead. I mean, that's the only thing I can think of because he did not uh, like admit to any cannibalism or anything. They yeah. don't believe there was any evidence that he ate her. He wasn't like cooking her for that okay. purpose. You know, yeah. I, I think he was just trying to get rid of her. Get rid of her. Yeah. Whoa. Finally, the investigator opened up the refrigerator where he found Addie's legless and armless torso bound in a bloody trash bag. The cops on the scene compared it to being in a horror movie. It was so completely incomprehensible that it didn't seem real. It was eerie, gruesome, and beyond belief. In the apartment, the investigators discovered another note written in Addie's journal by Zach. So I'm going to like tell you when I'm reading the actual note and then like he kind of goes on to explain what's been happening in the intervening two weeks since he murdered his girlfriend. Okay. So she had stolen this apartment, he writes. In parentheses, ask Leo Watermeyer. He'll explain that one. Tried to kick me out and then would not shut the fuck up. So I very calmly strangled her. It was very quick. After sexually defiling the body a few times. What? I was, mm-hmm. I was posed with the question of how to dispose of the corpse. Yeah, there you go. But before Zach could effectively clean up the crime scene, he passed out in a drunken stupor and woke up just in time for his morning shift at Matassa's, where he told Capriccio that Addie had left him and moved back to North Carolina. And he later told another friend a different story. After returning to the apartment at 9 p.m., he decided to clean up the scene. First, he dragged her corpse into the bathroom and began to dismember her. He wrote, I came home, moved the body to the tub, got a saw, and hacked off her feet, head, and hands. Put her head in the oven after giving it an awful haircut. Put her hands and feet in the water on the range. What? Yeah. So Zach was drinking while he was cutting apart and roasting his lover. And after working into the night and getting wasted, he eventually passed out. Oh, my God. Zach wrote, I was to be off all weekend, so I had plenty of time to work. But due to laziness, spent most of that time coked out in various bars with different girls. Oh, my God. 
I mean, this is just insane. From Shake the Devil Off, after waking up on a Sunday, he realized he was supposed to take his kids that day. Oh Here's my God. What happened. Mm-hmm. His kids were supposed to come over to his apartment. Realizing that Lana would be furious with him for again missing out on his time to take the kids, he offered to give Lana $600 in cash that he owed her in child support if she showed up at Matassa's that afternoon instead. Lana agreed to meet him there, and when she and Jackson and Lily arrived at Matassa's, Zach was in a happy, generous mood. Y'all go run inside, Zach told the kids, and get all the Cokes and candy you want. While Jackson and Lily scoured the aisles of the grocery store for candy and gum, Zach handed Lana the $600 and told her, why don't you let me fix the place up this weekend and have the kids come next weekend? Lana was skeptical of Zach's offer. Wouldn't Addie intervene and force Zach and the kids into a hotel? No, Zach said forcefully. Addie's not going to stay at the apartment this weekend. Zach then returned to 826 North Rampart, where he continued his work on Addie. Sunday night, Zach wrote, I sawed off the rest of the legs and arms and put them in roasting pans, stuck them in the oven, and passed out. Ugh. I came to seven hours later with an awful smell emanating from the kitchen. You think? I turned off the oven and went to work Monday. That would be the last day I'd work. Later that night, three days after he had killed her, when Zach returned home from work at Matassa's, the sight of Addie's rotting, dismembered corpse struck and overcame him with horror and self-hatred. I scared myself, not by the action of strangling the woman I've loved for one and a half years, but by my entire lack of remorse, Zach wrote in Addie's journal. So I decided to quit my job and spend the $1,500 in cash I had being happy and then kill myself. Zach then attempted to plunge entirely into the oblivion of drug and drink, guzzling bottles of Jameson, snorting thick rails of cocaine, and throwing down hundreds of dollars for lap dances in French Quarter strip clubs. Oh, my God. On Sunday, October 8th, Zach spent the evening at the Hustler Club on Bourbon Street. He managed to so charm one exotic dancer that she took him to her home in the New Orleans suburb of Metairie for two days of wild sex and drugs. So he's just having a grand old time while his girlfriend is dismembered. Uh-huh. Wow. Just leaving her body and he completely seems desecrated. Completely aware and like he seems like he knows what he did. So it's not like he had some sort of I mean, obviously it was a mental break, but it wasn't like he like blacked out and Yeah. I mean, I agree with you completely. I mean, that's like what he wrote. Like, I'm shocked at how little remorse I feel or, you know, how he was handling it, you know? Like, he's sitting down, he's writing this letter, he's making plans, you know? On October 10th, he realized that it was his and Lana's eighth wedding anniversary, and he drunkenly called her at midnight, begging her to have a drink with him. Lana rebuffed him, and he yelled, you're still my wife, we're not divorced. Lana calmly explained that they were both in serious relationships with other people, and it wouldn't be appropriate. Zach got desperate. He offered her money for the kids for winter coats if she would come out. And when that failed, he offended her by saying, come on, I want to party with my favorite stripper. Also, like, how about you stop spending all this money on Coke and, like, leave it for your kids who are going to need support? 100%. Absolutely. Yeah, so Lana got mad and hung up on him. So by then, like I said, he had stopped going to work and he spent the next week in a blur of booze, blow, and broads. Wow. Literally spending like every last cent he had. Finally, on the day of his suicide, he inflicted 28 cigarette burns all over his entire body, one for each year that he had lived. 
He wrote in the journal suicide note, he recalled his last wasted days writing, good food, good drugs, good strippers. Had a fantastic time living out my days. I cannot even. Uh-huh. Ugh. He also quoted Metallica's song, Damage Inc., fuck it all and fucking no regrets, and gave the chilling accounts of what he did with Addie's corpse, and then offered a list of his life's failures, writing, friends, jobs, military, marriage, and love. You want like a pity party or? Yeah, also uh, not being a fucking murderer. Let's put that on the list. At the bottom of the note, he gave the investigators the contact information for his loved ones. He spray-painted Lana's number on the wall, and above the bathtub wrote, I love her. And in the book, the author suggested I love her was in reference to Addie, but I don't know. I think it might have been in reference to Lana. Yeah. He then scored coke at Squirrels and went to the Omni Hotel's roof bar where he met his demise. Wow. So they reached out to Lana, of course, and she was naturally devastated. I mean... How do you even explain to a child that their father is dead, let alone these circumstances of his death? Yeah, you can't. And no matter- You almost don't. (laughs) You don't. I mean, she said it was really terrible because the child psychologist that they took the children to- Which suggested uh, that they- Applauding her for doing that. Which, of yeah. I mean, that was the best thing she could have possibly done, but- for some reason, and I, I'm not a therapist, obviously, guys, so I don't know if this is the right way, but that psychologist was like, no, you have to tell them the truth, like, of what happened, like, like not the it, it, the the details, but that there was a murder and that their father killed themselves, and it completely ruined these children's lives. She said that her daughter was, like, drawing, like, bloody depictions of their father, like, killing Addie. Uh, I mean, I'm sure that's just how she was processing it, you know, by like trying to understand it. But it was like, it was just such a, a unbelievably difficult time in Lana's life and the children, of course. And she was so angry. Like she couldn't at all like mourn hi- him at all because of this thing that he had done that affected her and her children forever. And no matter what she told them and when, they're going to find out. They're going to know every detail. They're going to grow up and they're going to Google their father and it's going to be something that they're stuck and saddled with forever for the rest of their life. Yeah. So she was she was really angry. And she, you know, she was also angry, like you said. He spent his last days partying with strangers rather than reaching out to his family or spending any time with his kids or spending any, saving any money for his children, yeah. you know? yeah. She said in some ways she was relieved that he killed himself because it did spare her and the children a media circus and a trial that would have ruined their lives, you know? For New Orleanians who survived Katrina, the news of the murder-suicide of the famous French Quarter holdouts hit hard, especially for those who knew and loved Zach and Addie. Dear friend Capriccio said to author Paul Collins, When you live in New Orleans, you live in a dream, Capriccio said then. But with Katrina, too much reality struck home. The feeling of a community based upon joy and revelry and mystery and danger and debauchery was gone. Capriccio explained that the depressive state of post-Katrina New Orleans was particularly difficult for Zach and Addie to manage because the storm had once been a powerfully cleansing moment for them. Katrina was horrible for many, Capriccio told me, but it was magical for Zach and Addie. It allowed these kids who were damaged to stave off reality, to fall in love without interference. So yeah, now the the apartment that they lived in has been renovated and it's now a part of the New Orleans ghost tour. Oh God. 
Yeah, I, I don't know if it still is. At the time of the writing of this book in 2009, it was, which is also real too soon yeah. for these murders that occurred in 2006. Yeah. Yikes. This is such a tragic story, and I really believe that it could have been prevented if Zach may have received not only the correct veteran benefits, but, you know, obviously the mental health treatment he so clearly needed. I feel like a lot. Like, I mean, also, if if he had been discharged the correct way, maybe Lana wouldn't have left him. Well, and that, yeah, that plays into veteran benefits as well. Like obviously making sure that the exit is what it needs to be. 100%. Yeah. You devote your life to something, you put your life on the line and then to just be kind of dumped out with no assistance. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So interesting murder side note. While researching this, I looked up an indie documentary called Zach and Addie, which came out in like 2013 or 2014. And basically the main character in it is a woman named Margaret Sanchez, who is talking about her relationship with both Zach and Addie. And it was actually the filmmaker's meeting of this woman, Margaret Sanchez, that spurred him to create the documentary. Okay. Margaret Sanchez turned out to be a murderer. What? Uh Uh-huh. In 2019, she pled guilty to luring a 22-year-old single mother, an exotic dancer, to her boyfriend's house where they killed and dismembered her and then dropped her body parts into the Gulf of Mexico. So I didn't get a chance to watch it, but there's actually a snapped killer couples episode about this. The couple's name was Margaret Sanchez and Terry Speaks, and it was the tragic murder of Jaron Lockhart. Whoa. It's so crazy. And also, um, there's like 100 pages of this book where he just talks about other murders in New Orleans. So if you guys are interested, I would definitely recommend checking out Ethan Brown's book, Shake the Devil Off. Andy, that was pretty heavy, huh? super heavy. I feel like a hundred pounds heavier. Yeah. So sorry guys to ladle you with that really heavy story, but I think it's an important one to be told. And I hope that you- very, very love murdery. Yes. I hope. I mean, it really is. I mean, I mean, that's kind of like what we talk about. What kind of circumstances can lead to somebody who started off promising to do something so unbelievably horrifying and beyond belief. Horrific. Horrific. So in conclusion, guys, trust your gut when it comes to love so no one ends up murdered. And gosh darn it, take care of one another out there. Love you. Love you. See you next week. Bye. Bye.